2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. As I keep telling people, fighter pilots fit into a very narrow demographic of the general population. We're egotistical, we're overconfident and like each other because we're almost the same as each other. When I went to meet the guy who was to train me on the MiG-21, I walked into his hotel room and it was nine o'clock in the morning and he put a glass of sliver bits in my hand and said, let's go this. And I went, yep, you're a fighter pilot. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 168. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And we will get to our interview, which is a repurposed happy hour from a couple years ago in just a few minutes. But first, some announcements and listener questions. Now, I am recording this on May 29th, 2023, which is Memorial Day. And if I sound a little somber, that is because I've spent most of the weekend reminding people not to wish anyone a happy Memorial Day because this is the day that honors those who gave their lives while in the service of the U.S. military. And I personally knew 15 such individuals. I was certainly around for many more, but I could recall the names of 15, two of which uh, perished right in front of me, actually. And so I used to wear that number on the back of my helmet as my own little tribute. And then this morning I went to a ceremony here in Coronado where I live that was uh, full of pomp and circumstance and speeches and 21-gun salute and taps, and it was uh, pretty memorable. So I hope you've had a good holiday, and by the time you'll hear this, it'll be over, but I hope when you were enjoying some downtime that you remembered those who guaranteed our freedoms by paying the ultimate sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but at least here in the States, it's somewhat paradoxical because we have the freedom to do all kinds of nefarious and crazy things, at least in my mind, and uh, disagree on all kinds of things and not disagree very well. But when it comes right down to it, we have that right because of those who paid the ultimate price. So I hope you remember that. Anyway, let's move on. Actually, my first announcement is no happier. Uh, Those of you who follow the Fighter Pilot Podcast on social media or just uh, military aviation in general, you probably already saw that on May 20th, our guest from episode 51, Mr. Brian Shaw, passed away unexpectedly at the age of 75. I believe cardiac arrest is labeled as the cause. And it's unfortunate because he was relatively young and he had cheated death, as you remember from his story, riding an airplane to a crash in Vietnam and being left for dead. And, oh, wait, no, I guess he's alive, but he'll probably die soon. Oh, wait, well, let's take him to the hospital. And anyway, he survived multiple operations and uh, they never thought he would live, let alone fly again. And not only did he prove him wrong, he went and got an astronaut qual and flew the SR-71. And I had just seen Brian back in September... I think it was of 22 so about uh, six months earlier at the reno air races and it was good to see him and catch up so our hearts are broken for him and his family and all his old squadron mates so rest in peace punchy in happier news you might remember i was in the turks and caicos for a week with my wife and some friends to celebrate our silver anniversary which is actually not until june 13th but we celebrated early and man did we have a good time Came back with our stomachs hurting from so much laughter, our livers hurting from other things, and a nice tan. So that was a great time, and I hope to do that again. 
And then about a week after that, my oldest son Slater graduated from college. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you might remember episode seven. He made the music for our Top Gun versus Top Gun episode. And he was also instrumental to me early on with some of the things I needed to learn as I started in podcasting. So Slater, proud of you, son. Love you so much and can't wait to see what you do in life and with your degree. Uh, let's see. And then I guess one other interesting announcement is just this past weekend, I was on a four day rotation and I ended up having three different first officers. Uh, you might remember I am a captain now sitting in the left seat and the third one who sat down, he says, Hey, you're the guy from the podcast. I listen. (laughs) And so that was a first, it was kind of cool. I've had passengers say they listen. I even had a maintenance guy come up and check on something one time and recognize me. But uh, Stephen, you were my first FO to say that. And it was great flying with you. So hope to bump into you again. He's uh, based in LA like I am. So that's a good chance of that. All right. I have just one listener question, but then I have a listener feedback. I don't know where else to put this, but it was from a previous question. It's from Tim who says, as I was listening to your show during my morning commute to NAS Whiting Field, a listener question came up about crews and how they are assigned and if they remain together. And most carrier platforms were discussed, but as a former P-8A Poseidon pilot, I just wanted to shed some light on the working of the MPRA community, which I think is Maritime Patrol and Reconnaissance Aircraft. So uh, Tim, I hope I got that right. Anyway, continuing, Tim says, each VP squadron has 12 combat air crews, aka CACs, with nine crew members on each, three pilots, two NFOs, four enlisted crew members or AWOs, Each squadron is home for 12 months before deploying again for six months. Crew lists are generally written anew when they return from deployment as people move on and check out, etc., and are tweaked continuously throughout the home cycle. But these crews train together for 12 months, turning red boxes green, which is just an expression for the computer-based training we often do, and completing advanced readiness programs and ORE before going out the door. Crew dynamics for MPRA slash VQ are unique because of the officer enlisted interoperability, which is not something seen besides helicopters. And so you're not only being a good operator, but a sound officer is empirical because they are always watching, they being the enlisted crew. Well, that's good to know, Tim. And I have zero experience with the VP or VQ community. So I appreciate knowing that. And I still wonder with that big of a group, how you handle if someone bumps their head or gets COVID or just plain old sick or something happens and they have to be called home for a sick wife or mother or spouse or whatever. But at any rate, it sounds like they try to train together and that's good to hear. So appreciate the feedback, Tim. And I'm always honored that people like you listen to the show. Well, for the rest of you who listen, those of you maybe aspiring to be military aviator someday or wanted to be, but it didn't work out. I appreciate that you listen and you are dear to me, but for validation purposes, I'm still amazed that so many people from the communities of military aviation listen and seem to appreciate it. So I certainly appreciate that. All right, I have a question from Luke from Australia. I just got this one, I think yesterday. What aircraft, past or present, would you love the opportunity to fly? For me, the choice is easy, the Concorde. She was truly one of a kind. Well, thanks, Luke. That is a great question. If you're asking aircraft in the plural sense, I would say the F-22, maybe the SR-71, the F-14, F-15. Oh boy, there's all kinds. I mean, there's so many amazing aircraft out there. And so I am blessed to have flown the F-18 and the F-16 as much as I did. But yeah, it'd be fun to you know, kind of flick a switch and be able to jump in an SR-71. But certainly it doesn't work that way. And it would have been months and months of preparation, even if they were still flying. So that's a good one. And I think we've had something like that before. But, you know, if I could go back in time and realistically go fly something like as a tour in my career, I think to go do an F-22 tour would have been pretty cool. All right. Well, I think that's enough rambling for this episode and you're only going to hear this on the audio side the video side just goes straight to the interview as you might know but you know i'd like to uh, just catch you up on what's going on in my life and uh, the audio seems the best way to do that so all right this episode as i mentioned earlier is a replay of a happy hour from back during covid because uh, if you watch the video version i had a pretty decent beard going but it was a little gray, so I don't know if I'll do that again. At any rate, it is with an Australian, speaking uh, from Luke there. Luke, you might recognize the name Philip Frawley. He holds a global distinction you will learn about early in our discussion, 
So without any further ado, let's get to it. And then I won't be back at the end. We'll just see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But enjoy this episode 168 with Frawls. Here we go. Well, I appreciate you uh, willing to join us uh, here, Frawls. And I'll tell you this much. I've had a lot of different people entertain me, if you will, on this show in various capacities. I don't think I've ever had a Guinness Book of World Record holder. So <laughs> don't you fall into that elite category? Yes, yes, I do. I keep telling people, not that I'm the best fighter pilot or the worst fighter pilot, just the bloody oldest. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to ask this, though, because as I was doing a little research, I had heard about you the last few years, but in preparation for a meeting with you today, is it just that you were the oldest pilot flying a fighter because with all the airplanes these days flying as we call it the commercial services here in the states i gotta think there's some old timers doing that but maybe not well the criteria for it was to be part of an air force and be operational so in that respect uh, you had to be able to be called out to go to war so yeah and in that respect if it came down to me, they were in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they can count on the, as I read, 499 students that you train. Come on. How did you not find someone and say, you're my student for a week? Here we go. Man, I must have recounted that about 15 times. I, I, I went through, I said, surely I made it to 500. Crying out loud, no, I didn't. I mean, I've, I've had more students than that foreign students and things like that, but that was just Australian Defence Force students. Oh, boy. And then 49 and a half years of consecutive service in the Royal Australian Air Force? Yep. I did five years in Saudi Arabia as well. I was still a reservist with the Air Force, and I went over there, trained there. It's to be fighter pilots. as It was a thing that was sort of sanctioned by the Australian government. So, you know, support for foreign allies kind of deal. I had a gentleman on the show recently to discuss his very good book, I think it's Phantoms to Warthog, something like that. And he actually trained our friends at the time in Iran back before the big fall. So I can imagine you enjoyed your experiences in some ways and others, huh? Yeah, the flying in Saudi Arabia was absolutely amazing. It really was. It was very, very good. It was kind of a little like it was when we were flying in the early 80s and things like that. So the rules... For instance, for low flying was don't hit the ground. So it was pretty impressive. So the terrain and that that we flew through, particularly in the west of the country, was amazing. It really was. Some of the students were a challenge, but I point out to some people that the best student I ever had in my whole career was a Saudi. Is that right? Yeah, I've never come across a guy who was an absolute natural, and this guy was. He flew much better than me. He ended up going on to F-15, so uh, I haven't heard from him since, but uh, he was astounding. Wow. So natural ability, I mean, you could argue that is God-given or, uh, you know, whatever other method, but what makes a good student? You've seen a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, you know, somebody who's dedicated and, you know, responsive, I suppose, I mean, I was never, ever a natural pilot, and I've got plenty of witnesses who will attest to that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, and the beauty of training fighter kids is that they are really motivated. They want to be there. They want to be a fighter pilot. And you are just participating in letting them get along to their dream, you know. So that's where the joy in that comes from, of training these kids. But, yeah, so in that regard, I mean, I did some ab initio training earlier on in my uh, instructional career. And uh, that was on the time kind of challenging and disappointing because you'd give your best to try and get a kid through and he doesn't make it. But the fighter training was great. Loved it. Yeah. So I'm going to rely on you here, if you don't mind, for some questions, assumptions, if you will, on my part. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Fighter Pilot podcast. I don't assume to be the Fighter Pilot. It's just a show that I started and that's the name I took. So I spent not quite 25 years in the Navy and flew F-18s primarily, F-16s a little bit. And so I have this show and suddenly I become the authority. In fact, someone was just questioning me the other day because they asked me, hey, if you shoot down a drone, 
is that an aerial victory? And if you get five of them, are you an ace? And I thought, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it should be a, another person. I'm going to put some of the questions that I get to you, but I want to start with, since you've flown in Saudi Arabia, getting back to that, do you agree with me that people in our line of work are more or less the same all over the world, no matter their accents or nationality or anything else? I mean, I've always said we're kind of from the same cloth, but we also or in a sense, not of this earth. In other words, those who have flown, I think they know something that those who are earthbound don't know. Exactly right. We, as I keep telling people, fighter pilots fit into a very narrow demographic of the general population. We're egotistical, we're uh, overconfident, and we like each other because we're almost the same as each other. So. And the best uh, example I can have of that is when I went to meet the guy who was to train me on the MiG-21, I walked into his hotel room and it was nine o'clock in the morning and uh, he was a Slovakian general and he put a glass of Schlivovitz in my hand and said, <laughs> let's go this. And I went, yep, you're a fighter pilot. <laughs> it was, you know, I was just intrigued to see what a an Eastern Bloc trained fighter pilot would be like. And he was just like me, you know, he really was. He was a wonderful man. I, I would say uh, some of the things I tell people on my show is uh, we don't suffer fools. Because when you're in charge of a 30,000 pound airplane with bombs and fuel and weapons and speed and all those things, you have to be very put together. And so you can't handle or tolerate, I can't, anyone who really doesn't have the ability to do that. Either do it or don't, but don't dilly-dally, you know? I'm exactly like that. Something needs to be done, we do it now. We don't muck around, we do it and we do it to the best of our ability so that nobody has any to question us, you know. Also, I, I, for one, I can't stand not being on time because I'm just so used to doing that in our career. You know, if you're expected to be somewhere, that you're there. And so there's an element to that. The way I see it, if I'm 15 minutes early, I'm 10 minutes late. <laughs> now, and help me out with, uh, again, the, the question that I suddenly became the expert on, which I didn't want to be. When you go out in a fighter plane, you can employ ordnance on ground targets, air targets, et cetera. So if you blow up a tank, if you blow up five tanks, that doesn't make you anything special. To me, if you shoot down a drone that happens to be flying, I don't think that counts. So what do you think? What's the definition of an ace? The definition of an ace is fighting against guys who are of the same ilk. So you don't get in the ring as a boxer and beat up a, a robot, do you? <laughs> there you go. That's probably a good way to put it. I, I agree with that. And then uh, just getting back to the students, have you had some, I assume you have over your years, who maybe didn't either end up in the airplane they wanted or maybe washed out or went somewhere else and how they handled that as part of the character of their being? Did you ever have to counsel people on that? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, uh, when I was the uh, commanding officer of the, the training squadron many years ago, it was one of my duties is to tell a kid that his dream bubble had dispersed and uh, he wouldn't be staying on with us. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. I might point out that it happened to me. So I came off my pilot training. I went to uh, Mirages initially and got washed out. And then I went to C-130s for five years and then came back. So uh, I was determined I was going to be a fighter pilot some way or another, and I managed to do it. Well, you did it for, if I read correctly, 49.5 years. Again, so close. They wouldn't keep you for another six months? You know, it was my decision. I just got to the point because the F-35 was coming into service and the F-18, as it was coming to the end of its service, was incredibly much more capable than when I flew it. I'm an instructor instructing on tactics that I've never used. So it just got to the point where I went, you know what? This is like a reality show. It's not real, you know. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I just thought I'd just bow out. You see footballers and people like that who, uh, you know what, I know it's time. And, you know, it would have been nice to do 50 years, but that wasn't the point. The point was, am I going to be useful? Right. And I just decided I wasn't going to be. Another question I want to ask you is, I feel like the demographics of fighter pilots have changed. Now, I don't know very much about Australian fighter pilots, although I assume they're fairly similar. But if you look at the American culture in the 70s and 80s, you had the F-4 and F-14, somewhat very macho, but not maybe very cerebral type of fighter pilot. And I don't mean to categorize, but bear with me. 
Today, I feel like they're much more analytical, much more able to think in three dimensions and quickly. I wonder what your experience has been, again, with your half a century almost of flying experience. How have you seen the demographic of a fighter pilot change? It's changed uh, markedly. Like you say, you know, in the early days when I was training these kids, you know, they were just like me. They were aggressive and good hands and feet men, whereas these days the kids are good computer game and uh, that's where the jet is these days. You know, the Hawk that I was training on had an F-18 cockpit in it and uh, they picked up on the logic really, really quickly, whereas such a our old timers like me, you know, a little while to get on top of all of that sort of stuff. But uh, And I did fly the F-35 simulator for about half an hour and uh, that was just incredible. And I went, yep, <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thanks. Here's your money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone can accuse you of shirking your duties or otherwise. You certainly have amazing experiences. So I wonder, I'm sure you have them readily at hand, but the articles I read, you weren't quite all the way done. So give us the final total numbers. I, I read over 10,000 flight hours and so many in fighters. Yeah. Yeah. I just clicked over 10,000 hours just before I, uh, retired and uh, 6,000 of that was uh, on fighter aeroplanes. Admittedly, a lot of that was the last one, the Hawk 127, which I had uh, two and a half or something thousand hours on. uh, Takeoffs and landings equal? Uh, Yeah, yeah. The only time I I ever parachuted, I was pushed out of the back of a transport aeroplane against my will. But... I mean, for a lot of, what, 6,000 hours in ejection seats, that's actually pretty impressive. How about single-engine aircraft? Probably a lot yeah. of it or most of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I flew the Mirage for five years. That was single-engine, and the, the Hawk, naturally enough, is a single-engine airplane. So, yeah, the Mirage was um, a real manly airplane, that's for sure. Which Mirage? And, uh, Mirage 3.0. It was a very manly airplane. We lost a lot of them. Most of that, except for on the Hornet, was uh, single engine. Wow. So I don't know if we want to go through and list all the aircraft you've flown, and you can certainly do that if you want, but my question at the end is going to be, imagining if you were current now, and maybe you are, that's a question to itself, but you could walk out to any one of them and kind of program yourself to be prepared to go fly it. So, you know, obviously you have to do the exams and prepare yourself, but if there was one of those that you could go jump in, Frals, what would it be? MiG-21. MiG-21, really? Mm, Why so? I was just really, really impressed with its reliability with with the systems that it had in it, having flown the Mirage. The MiG-21, the systems were so simple, so incredibly effective. In the Mirage, for instance, when you went supersonic, it had a flight controls computer. It was analog. But uh, that flight controls computer prevented you using the elevons too much when you were supersonic. So it, you know, drove the hydraulic axe to a certain position and stuff like that to prevent all of that going. In the MiG-21, it was a rack and pinion. It just moved along the rack as you got faster and faster. (laughs) It's unbelievable, you know, and it had a panic button. On the top of the stick, there's a white button. You get into an unusual attitude, just press the button, the autopilot re-erect the airplane. Yeah, you weren't allowed to use it below 3,000 metres, so obviously it took a while for it to take effect. But it was just a great aeroplane, having symmetrical aerofoil. Its ability to decelerate and accelerate was quite incredible. I showed the aeroplane for a couple of years on demonstration flights all around the country. Yeah, it was an amazing aeroplane. Not taking away from the Hornet. I love the Hornet too. No, I agree. The Hornet is very good at a lot of things, but there's not like, in my opinion, one of those that really gets you excited. Maybe the slow speed dogfighting, I guess. I wanted to ask you about flying the MiG-21 in IMC because we had a guest on the show talking about exploitation programs. Brian McCoy, I believe was his name. And he said that they weren't allowed when they flew them here near Vegas to uh, go into the clouds because the attitude reference was... I guess backwards from what we are used to? Yeah, really strange. Well, the MiG-15, I flew that for a little while and uh, the attitude indicator had brown at the top and blue at the bottom. And and you just went, if you change the wires around, it'll work properly. But the MiG-21, just like the L-39 that I fly now, the attitude indicator, the actual aeroplane symbol gives you bank angle and the 
hard and the back goes up and down to give you a pitch angle. But uh, never flew anywhere near a cloud in the MiG-21 ever. <laughs> I don't blame you. My goodness. Did you get it to Mach 2? No. We actually tried one day. Air traffic control in Australia are quite different to those around the world. And uh, we tried to do a Mach run one day with one of the owners in the back seat and uh, they wouldn't let us do it. We went out over the sea, but they reckon they couldn't see us on our transponder, so they wouldn't let us do it. But I did sort of touch it, Mac one at an air show one day and got into trouble. But the thing didn't accelerate. So what was the fastest you'd ever flown, let's call it Mach, and in what aircraft? Mac 2 and the Mirage 3. Mach 2 and the Mirage 3. Okay, how about either true or ground, if you ever happen to catch either one of those? What do you mean, true airspeed you're talking about? Yeah. Mac 2, as I recall, and I did the run, was about 620 knots at about 38,000 feet. So that's pretty impressive. Um, as far as, you know, down low, close to the ground, again, the Mirage, 600 knots, do that very, very easily. How about the highest you ever flew and what was it in? <laughs> the highest I ever flew was in the Mirage and I didn't really, was not trying to fly high. I just managed to screw it up. But uh, I was doing an intercept on a... Uh, Amber Bomber one night, and uh, he was up at about, oh, I think, what would be 41,000 feet. And I was at, so he was in the one to fours, and I was in the six to nine. So I was at 38, 39,000 feet. And the Mirage, when you did a turn, you had to go into afterburner. And I was having trouble getting the camber on the radar because the Mirage radar wasn't all that good. And I came around behind him. I couldn't get him on the radar, and it was just frustrating me. And uh, I was working up tail off trying to get the camber on the radar and I just couldn't get him I just didn't know what was going on and I looked in and uh, I set a, an attitude of about 10 degrees nose up and I flew through about 55 56,000 feet as I realized this 55,000 feet was the maximum you could go on the Mirage and uh, in my panic I bunted and you know what happens when you bunt a jet in full burner it just accelerated and kept climbing <laughs> so Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, allveteran.com is here to help. All Veteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. I didn't know. I just sat there and just kept the bunt going because I had no idea. It was night time, so I had no idea what I was doing. So I imagine I got to almost 60,000 feet, I suppose, something like that. But the, the epilogue to the story was as I came down and, and uh, sort of composed myself again, I flew one and a half miles in front of the camber who promptly shot me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did caveat at the beginning. You didn't claim to ever be the best. <laughs> no, that's right. When it comes to hamburger stories, I've got a lot of them. Oh, my. Well, that's yet another uh, reinforcement. I can't think of a better word suddenly that I was hoping for from you, which is, we're not like our counterparts in Hollywood, I would say. Most of us are not too full of ourselves. In fact, we're quite ready to poke fun at ourselves. Oh, yeah. You need to join in with the, with the majority in that case. <laughs> you, you know what it's like being in a crew room or being in a, in a bar? You know, you, you just make one slip up and you're going to wear that for weeks on end, you know. Yeah. We've all done that. All right. Another question I want to ask you is, did you ever have a parent who was a student at one point and then a, a, a son or daughter? I had a stepfather who was on pilot's course during World War II, very late in the piece and uh, the war ended and he got demobbed. So uh, that's pretty much where I got my interest in flying, although I seem to recall that I had it anyway. 
and I have two sons, and neither of them are in the least bit interested. So, That's yeah. because it's been too available their whole lives, right? Yeah, overexposure is what it is. I mean, when, when that damn movie Gun came out, my eldest boy decided, well, I think I'll be a fighter pilot. I said, mate. That's not the motivation. Just because you saw it in a movie, it doesn't work like that, you know. Yeah, right. Let me rephrase my question, Frawls. Did you ever have a student of yours, a flight student, who then you had that person's son or daughter later? No, no, did not. I had peers whose sons came through, but uh, I'd never, I hadn't trained them. So that was my peers. Yeah. No, it's fun. You're a bit of a unicorn, so I'm just exploring the dance floor here, if you will, <laughs> to, uh, to see what you have and haven't done. I mean, for heaven's sakes, you've been in the Royal Air Force for half of its existence. Doesn't it turn uh, 100 here soon? Yeah, yeah, 100 years on the 31st of March, yeah. Well, what are they going to do? Anything fancy? Well, they've got all sorts of things uh, planned, naturally fly past, uh, you know, everywhere sort of thing. So, you know, the, the local base here, the fighter base, Williamstown, they've got lots of things going on. I've even been invited to a couple. How about that? Oh, I bet. You're a bit of a celebrity. Now, our first feature on the podcast with an Australian crew will be episode 111. And then guess what? It's the F-111. And uh, I bet you know these gentlemen, but we got yeah, yeah. Uh, Leo and um, Mero to be on there. So the deputy chief and then one of the past chiefs. And they're going to talk about the F-111. Did you ever get a ride in the F-111? No, I went up to Amberley to get a ride. I was offered a ride. But you had to, because you sat in the right seat, there were some things on the right-hand side that the pilot couldn't reach that you need to do, know how to do and what to do with it. So you had to do a simulator ride first and foremost, but the simulator broke, so I missed out. Any other aircraft where you got a one-time ride that you wouldn't count necessarily as your, I mean, obviously you've flown a lot of aircraft, the Hawk and the F-18, but any other one-offs? P-51, I flew in the back seat. It was a two-seater, so I got a bit of a go at that, but, you know. Nice. I'm still trying to get myself into the front seat of one, but they're a bit rare here in Australia. There's only about half a dozen of them, and uh, rightly so, the people who own them are going, don't touch my aeroplane. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a shame that at the end of world war ii it took a little time to quit building them so they would build them and destroy them right away and boy if they could have just put those in climate controlled storage for 70 years wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> yeah exactly right oh yeah great shame what else is on your wish list that's about it really because i've flown a lot of warbirds you know i've flown the kitty hawk the hawk of sea fury b28 trojan a couple others tied them off uh, things like that. But uh, yeah, no, just the Mustang because, uh, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with a lot of the aeroplanes that I flew. Great experiences. Oh, the Sabre, you know, I flew the F-86 as a demonstration pilot. That was uh, a great experience as well. Well, you really have done it all, Frawls. That's pretty impressive. And you're still flying, you said, what, an L-39? Yeah, fly the L-39. Got a little, well, I don't own it, but a friend of mine's got a company here and we just do adventure flights with it. So I uh, get to go flying every third or fourth weekend, just go up and do four or five trips in it. A nice, easy little aeroplane to fly. Like any jet, it'll still bite you if you're not paying attention. But. Of course. I remember when I was in flight school, I, I forget what base it was, but they had a flying club and I went over to learn the Cessna 172 or something. And I thought, I was actually more nervous flying in that than I was in my regular airplane because I didn't know it as well as the military always makes you know every system so well. And I thought if you're at a thousand feet or lower, but the point being is you can die just as quickly at 70 or 80 knots in a general aviation aircraft as you can in a fighter. Yeah, exactly right. There's no two ways about that. Did you lose many friends over your service? I have to think you did. Yes, I did, yeah. Um, I lost a very good friend in an F-111 crash here in Australia with the nighttime mission. He and I were crash buddies on an instructor course and uh, we really got on very, very well. Lost a couple of other guys down the track in uh, you know, other accidents. So, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I mean, I've come close several times myself, but like every fighter pilot, if thought too much about it, you throw your wings in the bin and give it up. But, you know, you just, yeah, that was bad. I'm moving on from here. So, and that's pretty much what you sort of do. You, I, I guess it's part of your training, isn't it? You know, you do all this emergency handling and stuff like that. And those things that happen in life, you automatically sort of treat as an emergency. You just go, yep, yep, that was really, really bad. I'm really sad about that. But, uh, yeah, I'm moving on. 
Well, you have to, if you're going to let it bother you, like you said, you're not going to be able to continue to be effective. So, no, that's right. Yeah. all right. So you're still flying. Do you, I mean, I don't know. Did there ever come a time when it became a chore or a grind or did you always, I mean, obviously there are good days and bad days, I guess, but you still do it every few weekends. So you still enjoy it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I really do. It's, it's an addiction, you know. I mean, like any fighter pilot, my back and neck really hurt me <laughs> all the time. And, uh, you know, what's the definition of an addiction? You turn something that's hurting you, but you won't give it up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's as good a definition as there is. I read that you instructed in the F-18, but the, the particular article I read that in didn't say anything about your experiences in the F-18. Were you at some point like a, a frontline, I don't know what else to call it, but a, a fleet pilot in the Hornet and then went back to instruct or did you just learn it? Yeah, I did. I did uh, an operational tour and uh, I was XO 77 squadron on the F-18 uh, and then I went to, to ICU. Funnily enough, I did my course on the F-18 and uh, as I graduated, I then became the training flight commander for F-18 in the uh, conversion unit. So I did my instruction, I suppose, before I did an operational tour, and then I went and did a, an operational tour uh, after that. Yeah. But with your experience and hours and duration, I don't know, does there come a point where, granted, the T-28, I understand, probably has some fairly significant P factor when you really firewall the throttle, but does there come a point where an airplane is an airplane and they all kind of give you the same messages, if you will, as you fly it, you can kind of cue in on certain indicators that you're in trouble or not? Yeah, I mean, if you ask me what the checklist was in the L-39, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, but as soon as I get into the cockpit, I know, you know, I just sort of assimilate with the airplane, you know. The T-28, like you say, is a very powerful airplane. Beat a P-51 to, I think, 3,000 feet, doesn't it, or something like that. That's some amazing thing that the, the P-28 is capable of, somebody told me. I'm not sure if that's true, but somebody did tell me that. The T-28 is a very powerful aeroplane, like you say. I actually had an emergency in one where the uh, governor failed. So I only had fine pitch. I couldn't get any pitch whatsoever. I had a student in the front seat who actually owned the aeroplane, and I could only get the aeroplane to 300 feet uh, in the circuit to get it back on the ground. So that was a bit of a scary moment for me. But, you know... You just jump into an aeroplane and, you you know, you appreciate what it's good at, what it's not good at, you know, those parts of the envelope that you avoid. The L-39 has a really strange stall. Uh, it doesn't actually, it's got a supercritical airfoil. It doesn't actually stall like a normal aeroplane. It sort of mushes and goes like that. And we'll eventually give you, a, a, you know, the standard stall indication. But leading up to that, you don't sort of appreciate you're losing altitude. It's a strange thing. And, and that's just an example of, you get to know your aeroplane. I mean, the F-86, that was uh, nasty with the gear and the flap down. If you had any slip or skid in a turn, that thing would spin immediately. You know, I know that because I did it. <laughs> oh, gosh. And obviously lived to tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I hadn't flown it for a while, so I just took it up to 10,000 feet and did the standard things that you're supposed to do. Did a clean stall and then did a um, dirty stall and... Uh, looked inside and the skid ball was slightly out and I just touched the rudder and he spun immediately. So managed to get it out naturally enough, but uh, yeah. And I didn't overspeed the gear or flat, which was quite, I was, I was working pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> Better lucky than good, they say, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I'm all over the map here, Frals, but I want to ask you one about night vision goggles. Is that something you did much of at all? I did not ever uh, use them. We did a visit over to the States and we went down to Phoenix uh, where they were developing them and uh, we tried them on in a dark room and that's my only experience with uh, night vision goggles. Funnily enough, uh, a lot of the guys on the fighters these days, they don't like going night flying unless they've got goggles and I'm going, Jesus mate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spend a lot of my life at night, you know, being scared and flying formation on other guys and you know all of this sort of stuff. And you're complaining because you can't have a pair of goggles to go night flying. Forget about it. I, I would put myself in the the latter camp because once you have them, you know how nice they are. Oh yeah, yeah. The only bummer is you have to keep scanning to build the picture because you're looking through the little optics. 
Yeah, but I, you know, I scared myself a lot of times night flying and that, and you just you just go back to it and just go, well, that's part of life, you know. You just got to keep going. You don't tell that in the bar after night flying, but. <laughs> Oh, boy. So one thing I don't know real well about the Royal Australian Air Force is, is there, I think like in the in the British services, you can go like one path and basically stay flying or you can go another path and work your way up the uh, ladder, if you will. Is that true uh, where you are? Is that how you stayed flying the whole time? Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, after I became, you know, after I was the CEO of a squadron, I just decided that I, I didn't want to become a guy behind a desk sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really academically brilliant by any stretch of the imagination. And, again, I have witnesses who will say my staff work wasn't all that brilliant. So <laughs> Maybe on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so what I did is I joined the reserves at the end of my flying career. And then I went to Saudi for five years and came back and stayed in the reserves. A lot of my uh, contemporaries and some of my students became very high up in our Air Force. Um, but, you know, they, they ended up uh, retiring with, you know, four and a half thousand hours flying, whereas, you know, I just kept on going. Are you at a point in your life where you don't need to worry about other work? Are you fully retired or are you doing some consulting or what else do you, are you doing? Uh, okay, well, I am the crew chief for the World Water Speed Record Challenge. Warby Motorsport. They have a jet-powered boat, and uh, so I run all the team and the crew and everything like that, and advise Dave Warby, who's going for the record, how to go about things, do the programming, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that keeps me busy. In fact, I'm going over to work on the boat uh, just after this. So we've had the boat up to 250 mile an hour so far. <laughs> Yeah, looking to do 350. Wow. Uh, and I'm also secretary of the our local and services league, so uh, veterans league. So, yeah, that, that keeps me on the toes. But I'm also, like most fighter pilots, I'm a car guy, so I like tinkering with cars. Oh, yes. So that, that, that keeps me busy as well. Yeah, I'm sure. How about a book? Uh, I'll go back to my staff work. <laughs> <laughs> First, yeah. <laughs> Well, you don't seem one to want to self-aggrandize, but there could be some very interesting anecdotes that you have from your extensive experience that could be valuable to people. Yeah, yeah. I've, well, I've written some blogs on that uh, on my website. One is, you know, so you want to become a RAF pilot and how to go about that sort of thing. So the problem is, too, at my age, I can't remember a lot of stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you, you run the risk of going, I'm pretty sure that's what had happened. Let's put that down on paper. And somebody comes back later on and says, I read your book. That's crap. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. Well, our, our brains are fallible, let's, let's say. Uh, at least mine certainly is. Like I said, I didn't write notes down because I thought I would just go wherever my, wherever my imagination took me. But you've been a good sport. And I can see that you're trying to fight off this cold, so I don't want to keep it too long, but have you come up with any, you know, axioms, if you will, or, or best practices, maybe is another way to put it, for the folks that do want to become flight students? And we, we talked at the beginning about the Saudi student who was very talented, but also put forth the effort and obviously listens and adapts the lessons you're telling. But I wonder if you have any, like I said, just sayings from your extensive experience, like, if you do this, then this will happen or, you know, anything. Yeah, most of the advice I give to my students is uh, it's going to be bloody hard, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you just need to make that light at the end of the tunnel bigger and bigger and bigger until you get out sort of thing. There's, there's lots of things uh, that I've told students kind of escape me the, uh, at the moment. There's the old memory going down the gurgler again. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess being... We talked about it before. I'd rather be lucky than good. So, <laughs> you know, there's no substitute for hard work, dedication, and really studying hard. And, you know, that was the other thing that was becoming a bit of a grind for me towards the end of my career. You know, being a an instructor, you turn up for work each day and you better be 105% as the absolute minimum. You have to look your best. You have to be your best. And you have, your knowledge has to be exemplary. There's no point having a student ask you a question and you go, I don't know. And, and that's just 
destroys your credibility right then and there. So, you know, and towards the end, getting into the books pretty much on a daily basis and making sure that your knowledge was uh, up to the, the correct standard was really hard. But, you know, the, the week after I retired, I sort of went through a bit of a withdrawal and then I suddenly realised I'm not going to have an instructor rating test. I'm not going to have an instrument rating test. I'm not going to have a no-notice emergency test, no-notice emergency simulator, you know, all these uh, tests and evaluations that you do through your career, which, you, you know, you just go from time to time. But in our Air Force, we also had to do online campus for things like equity and diversity and fraud and all this sort of stuff. And you had to do it on a yearly basis, you know, and there are exams on that and, Towards the end, it was very, very tedious, you know, it really was. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Did you ever find it, though, somewhat, I don't know, frustrating, for lack of a better word, to see, I would think some student mistakes are very common and you would see them repeatedly. Oh, yes. The one that comes to mind is designating with bank on in a Hornet. (laughs) That used to drive me nuts. (laughs) You know, guy roll in and, you know, have 20 degrees angle of bank and then designate and then roll out and go, where's it gone? (laughs) (laughs) Designate with bank on. Oh, geez. That was a really common mistake. And, you know, in in, uh, 1v1 tactics and that, you know, uh, getting too slow, you know, pulling too hard and and restoring the, the jet and stuff like that. You know, they that, that were very common things. Funnily enough, uh, I found that female fighter pilots wouldn't do that as much. They tended to feel the aeroplane a bit better. Um, and I was fortunate enough, uh, the first two F-18 pilots that we managed to graduate, I was involved with their training and uh, they were really good kids and uh, they, they had a really good feel for the aeroplane. And it, it's strange to... You know, for guys of my ilk, it's strange to have a female voice in the front seat and they're doing really, really well, you know, and you go, this kid can fight, you know. And they, they were really good, very, very competitive, which I thought was great. You know, they did a great job. You know. But I found the boys just a bit more mechanical initially, you know, and you'd say, crying out loud, mate, feel the jet, it's talking to you, you know. Well, they haven't learned the language yet. Yeah, yeah, that's right, you know. There's a guy over there, pull for your life, you know, and you just go, that didn't work, did it? (laughs) (laughs) More is better, some of us think. And uh, yeah, I definitely fell into that trap early in my dogfighting experiences is, oh, he's over there, I'll just keep pulling. And I I guess to a certain extent in the Hornet, you could get away with it a lot of the times, you know, because the thing is really, really slow. I had a 1v1 with an F-15 colonel who uh, insisted on seeing my film and... uh, I was on the inside of his circle gunning him and uh, I had about 55 or 60 degrees angle of attack and I was about 105 knots and he was incensed. <laughs> he said, what are your limits? And I said, oh, we don't have a limit. And he stormed out. <laughs> Whatever it takes to gun you. That's right, right, yeah. So on that note, if you walked into the ready room or whatever you would call it and they have two open flights, and one is uh, an air-to-ground training sortie of some part, uh, and you can decide what kind of bombs maybe, or one was an air-to-air BFM or something, and you can, again, uh, decide on who you would fight. Which one would you put your name in the hat for? Which one did you enjoy more? BFM every day. Is that right? Every day. I love it, yeah. That was one of my fortes. I was actually quite good at BFM, yeah. Never ever lost rolling scissors. There's a claim for you. Never lost at a rolling scissors. Never, ever lost a rolling scissors. And I fought some pretty good guys. Got shot in other places, but <laughs> not in the rock. Yeah, who hasn't? All right, so not to uh, defend the other side, but did you find satisfaction, though, in dropping? I assume you had the small practice blue bombs like we do here in the States on our Hornets, but didn't you find some satisfaction in dropping that from several thousand feet up and having it hit very close to where you intended? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember I dropped to 1,000 pounders early on in my career off the Hornet. And uh, I can't remember what the release height, eight or 9,000, and, you know, pulled out and the shockwave of the bombs going off hit the jet as I was going through about, you know, 13 or 14,000 feet. And I thought, man, that is power. And the other one I did, I was doing a night as mission and uh, threw a 500 pounder into the range and, you know, did what you're not supposed to do, look over my shoulder and see if I can see it go off. And it was amazing to see the ground glow 
red around the strike uh, for about, you know, half a second. But that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think, you know, being a fighter pilot, being able to accurately deliver your bombs, particularly on a, a TOT or something like that, being able to do that really, really accurately is very satisfying. And to be fair, yeah. it's probably far easier today than it's ever been throughout aviation history because of the equipment. Yeah, the, in the Mirage, it was just manual bloody guesswork kind of thing. The, the site wasn't really made for, you know, dropping bombs, but yeah. I never asked you about deployments. Did you ever drop anything in anger? Uh, no, I didn't. No, I uh, I did uh, two Cape Thunders, managed to miss all the nastiness uh, along the way. So, you know, good timing in that regard. But I was a photo reconnaissance pilot in Southeast Asia, and that's all I can say about that. All right, fair enough. Uh, this is fun. I don't know, Frawls, like I said, I don't have an agenda to ask you things. I just thought I'd make you suffer through your burgeoning cold here a little bit. But what else is there? You've already said you've got the P-51 front seat. That's the climax, huh? Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, still working on that. We're just about to have an episode on that here on our show. We've started covering more warbirds. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd just really like to uh, get a hold of one and, uh, you know, have a fly of it. There's one that may become available, but uh, it's having an engine overhaul at the moment. So, And the heads are in the States, so COVID being what it is, going to take a while for them to get shipped back out to Australia. So, yeah. yeah, everything takes longer than you'd wish. How about uh, being home now more? This isn't necessarily related to flying, but just for fun, since we saw your wife in the background, is, is she trying to tell you to get another job or does she like having you home? <laughs> uh, yes and no. <laughs> you know, I, I spend a fair bit of time uh, working on the bus as I said, and, uh, you know, mucking around with my cars and things like that. So, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, the, the boat goes away to do testing uh, at various venues around the place to, you know, make sure that it's balanced and that's good. So I have the odd weekend away from time to time. It gives her some relief, I'm sure. No, I, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying retirement. I really am. It's, it's so a little pressure and I'm, I'm really busy, you know, so... Uh, just, just loving life, really, at the moment, you know. Since I can go and fly a jet every now and then, that's, that's great. Uh, absolutely. Well, do me a favor. If you ever make it to the States, specifically Southern California, please let me know. It'd be great to shake your hand, COVID permitting, and buy you a refreshment or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we do go to the States uh, from time to time. We go to uh, Aspen skiing. That's just two years to save it up, but <laughs> it's well worth it. Well, I'm right across the bay from the USS Midway. I don't know if you ever had a chance to come and tour that or any other naval carriers. Yeah, I've seen photographs of that. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. All right, Falls, well, uh, we'll wrap it up. So really appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, yeah, no worries, mate. It's been great. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.